Grab yourself a Bailey's and hot chocolate and listen to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. How do I? I'll skip ahead a bit. No, I can't skip ahead. All, all right, everybody, into the time machine. No, 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 no. You don't understand how radio works. All I have to do to return this is fade my voice out like this and cue the organist. See, here we are. Wait a minute. 63 Audio presents the Old Time Radio Essentials Podcast. Greetings, all, and welcome to Old Time Radio Essentials. If this is your first time joining us, we must inform you that this is episode 17, our second annual Halloween special. <laughs> My name is Pete. And this is Paul. And I'm Dave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't do voices. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the purpose of our show is to present specific episodes of our favorite old-time radio series. Episodes that stand out as particularly representative of those series, or as one of those quotable episodes that fans of old radio like to discuss, either in person or on social media. We'll open each episode by introducing the selection, describing it briefly, and then we'll play it for you. Then we'll come back at the end and discuss it at length, each of us giving their opinions on its merit, its performances, or anything that stands out for us. And that's exactly what we're presenting to you. Just our opinions on whether or not it's worthy of a place in every old-time radio aficionado's personal collection. You don't have to agree with us, and in fact, we may not agree with each other. But we do hope you'll enjoy what we bring to the table and come back for more. Each of us three will take turns selecting a show for discussion. Last month's choice was mine, and that was an episode of Our Miss Brooks, School on Saturday, just in case you missed it. This month, it's back to Pete for his choice. What do you have for us, Pete? Now, I know we promised last month that I'd be bringing you an episode of Fibber McGee and Molly, but that was before I remembered that this month is October, so, tonight, in keeping with our trend of holiday specials, we're bringing an episode of that hit dramatic radio series, Escape. Specifically, an adaptation of Poe's classic horror tale, The Fall of the House of Usher. Escape was an American radio program, and this was the leading anthology series of high-adventure radio dramas, airing on the CBS network from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954. Since the program did not have a regular sponsor like its sister show, Suspense, it was subjected to frequent schedule shifts and lower production budgets, although Richfield Oil did sign on as a sponsor for five months in 1950. Despite these problems, Escape enthralled many listeners during its seven-year run. Of the more than 230 Escape episodes, most have survived in good condition. Many story premises, both originals and adaptations, involved a protagonist in dire life-or-death straits and the series featured more science fiction and supernatural tales than suspense. Some of the memorable adaptations include Daphne du Maurier's The Birds, Carl Stevenson's Leiningen vs. the Ants, Algernon Blackwood's Confession, Ray Bradbury's oft-reprinted Mars is Heaven, and of course, our selection for tonight. And so, without further delay, we present The Fall of the House of Usher from October 22, 1947, and Escape. And now, friends... Adjust your radio dials to the proper frequency. 
get comfortable and listen. Are you upset with today's headlines? Worried about the high cost of living? Want to get away from it all? CBS offers you Escape. You are the friend of a man living in death. Confident of a ghoul. Witness to a nameless terror. You are a guest in the House of Usher. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a gloom-shrouded moor and a house where dread holds sway. As Edgar Allan Poe recounts it in his famous story, The Fall of the House of Usher. It is with some regret, but I believe advisable that I identify myself only as a friend of Roderick Usher. Certainly the last and perhaps the only friend of that unhappy man. Having only one sister, he was the last male descendant of the ancient house of Usher. Roderick had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed now since our last meeting. And so as I held his letter in my hand, not yet opening it, I reflected with no little sadness upon the devious fates that chart our courses and drive old friends away from one another. But then a sudden feverish and nostalgic curiosity laid hold of me, and with fingers made clumsy by their eagerness, I tore open the letter and read, My dear friend, my need of you has so far outgrown my pride that I'm going to request a favor which I realize full well may involve considerable inconvenience to yourself. For some time past, I have been suffering from an acute bodily illness, illness intensified by serious mental oppression, if I may so call it. A horror which looms over me, a horror grown so great I dare no longer face it alone. And so, in all humility, and for the sake of years gone by, I beseech you to come to me at once here to the family estate in the north. Should events conspire to prevent your coming, then only God may know the consequences. Your friend in desperation, Roderick Usher. And so it happened that at the end of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the middle of October, I found myself as the shades of evening drew on within view of the grim and melancholy House of Usher. I confess that the first sight of the house 
the fungus-covered walls of stone thrusting their crumbling ramparts against the darkening sky, rising out of the sullen, sluggish waters of the black tarn at their base, the bleak and vacant windows staring blindly, the bone-white trunks of decaying trees. These things filled me with a nameless and desolate terror, so that I reined in my horse and sat trembling, half fearing to cross the wooden bridge that led over the waters of the moat and up to the entrance of the house of Usher. Then impatiently I shook off this strange feeling of dread and was an instant later clattering over the wooden bridge and onto the courtyard. I dismounted quickly, tossed my reins to the silent lackey who approached, strode across the gravel and up to the massive wooden portal, the door of the house of Usher. afternoon. My name I is... I know. You're the friend of Master Roderick. Please come inside, sir. Thank you. But may I inquire how it happens you know me? You have been expected for some time, sir. Yes, true. But also I'm a stranger to you and could be some other visitor. That you could be anyone other than the friend whom Master Roderick expects, sir, would be impossible. You see, no one else would ever come to this house. Then I followed his stealthy footsteps through many dark and intricate passages. My earlier foreboding heightened and was made fearful by the somber aspect of the hallways by which we passed. The many unused rooms reaching out with their vast emptiness like some hideous jungle creeper. But at length, we stood before the door of the master's studio and there the servant left me, departed and left me to go in alone. The man across the room, half reclining on the couch, his back turned toward me, did not hear the opening of the door. For the space of several heartbeats, I saw only the deathly pale and ghastly sunken features of a stranger. Then only with difficulty could I recognize, behind that mask, my boyhood friend, for surely, under light of heaven, no man had ever before so terribly altered in so brief a time as had Roderick Usher. Oh. Oh, my friend, my friend, you've come at last. Thank God you did come. Oh, Roderick, did you not know I would? Could you not be sure that no long years would ever dim the friendship we shared in youth? Hmm. So many things have dimmed. Ah, youth. It seems so long ago. But now you're here, and we'll find it, relive it all over again, every glorious moment of it. And all these shadows, all these gibbering phantoms that haunt me, they'll be driven out. And then the sun will shine again, and we'll be young again and relive... Roderick! Oh, but forgive me, my friend. My excessive joy at the sight of you after so many years drives me into a frenzy of talk. How many years has it? Oh, no matter. It is enough that you are here, here, and brought with you all the lost, all the happy days of my boyhood. But uh, I'd expected from your letter to find you in serious straits indeed. 
Instead, you seem in the best of spirits. You have the right to know. But in all frankness, here in your presence, I find it difficult to credit important to those things which only yesterday filled me with terror. Uh, true, I've been ill. A nervous affliction, something in the nature of a family weakness, probably. It has affected me with a morbid acuteness of the senses, such that quite often the least sounds and odors and colors become irritating beyond endurance. Then I've eaten but little, as you can see. But surely you've retained the services of a physician. A physician? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. He calls almost daily, though it is more often Madeline that he attends. You remember my twin sister, Madeline? For her, I fear, more greatly than for myself. Even today, she's taken to her bed, and I have no doubt will never rise from it again. Oh, a tragedy. The sympathies of my heart go out to you. Oh, but, but leave it for the present. Leave it to dream of all those happy days we left so far behind. Everything will be different now that you're here. Do you remember when we were 12? But the happy forgetfulness which Roderick found in my coming was short-lived. And in a few days, he had sunk into a morose torpor from which only occasionally with frantic difficulty could he reach the joy of our first few hours of meeting. More often, his mental apathy was broken by bursts of vicious temper and violent ill humor. Fits I could only excuse on the basis of his illness. And that illness began in my mind to assume a most mysterious character. Being unable to divine its true nature from Roderick's hesitant offerings, I took the liberty of questioning the physician a few days later when I chanced to encounter him in a hallway. Yes, yes, she's resting as well as might be expected. But she continues to decline. Is that not correct, Doctor? That would seem to be the case. And uh, the malady, the illness which has stricken her, is it the same as that which affects her brother, Roderick? I may venture that it is. Might I inquire the nature of this illness? As to that, I am unable to say. You imply, then, that I have no right to the information? Not at all. I am confessing to you quite simply, sir. I do not know what afflicts Madeline and Roderick Usher. And so a week passed. A week in which the sullen, leaden skies darkened into deeper oppressiveness in which Roderick's deathly pallor and creeping mental dissolution grew more apparent. A week in which the monstrous atmosphere of this ancient mausoleum began to crawl insidiously within my own consciousness, stirring into life a formless, unknown dread. Then one evening, we were sitting in the vaulted studio, while the first shadows of night began to flow together into pools of darkness. Roderick had been unusually troubled during the day and had been trying to find some solace by playing on the violin. Of a sudden, there came a knock upon the door. Stop it! 
Stop that infernal pounding, do you hear? Do you wish to drive me completely mad? Open the door and come in, come in. It's the doctor. Well, what is it? What do you want? Master Usher, I regret that I must say this, but it is my sad duty to inform you that your sister Madeline is no longer living. Madeline, my sister, then she's dead? She breathes no more. Dead? <laughs> and perhaps, my dear doctor, you can tell me what caused her death. Unfortunately, I can only take refuge in the term heart failure. Heart failure? <laughs> ah, yes, <laughs> of course. Very well, doctor. If you'll be kind enough to wait, I'll come down directly and discuss the arrangement. At your service. I bid you good afternoon, gentlemen. Roderick, I assure you of my deepest sympathy. You do. Your deepest sympathy. The doctor regrets his sad duty. Are you fools, both of you fools? I, I don't understand. Haven't you seen it yet? Can you not feel it about you? The horrid, monstrous, brooding spirit of this accursed house. Can't you hear its evil laughter as it lurks in the hallways and grows fat upon the soul? My dead sister. Roderick. Can't you see that it matters nothing to me that she's dead? That I myself walk but a few steps behind her into the same shadows of hell? Can't you sense those hideous tentacles even now reaching out for me? For me, who now the last living, if it be living, the last living descendant of the accursed house of Such was the passing of Madeline Usher, once living, now dead. And her very death, untimely in its aspects, bore to my trembling soul a portent of events yet more hideous, more horrible, and yet to come. At a later hour of that same sad night, Roderick came into my chamber to voice an intention so morbidly unnatural that for the moment I could only feel that his tottering reason had at last failed him entirely. Then you refuse? But, but, Roderick, this is madness. I tell you, before this night is over, the coffin body of my sister shall rest in the vault beneath this house, and if you will not help me, I shall do it myself. But... Why? Why? I could not stand to think of her buried out there in the dark graveyard, alone among the dead. Roderick, she too is dead. It's fantastic how little we know of death or of life. The doctor says she no longer breathes. She is dead. She was so lovely, was my sister... Roderick. I must keep Madeline near me. 
Nothing but evil would come of such an act. I can trust no one but you. Not even the physician himself. He hates us because he can't discover what it is that kills us. Even he might steal the body of my beloved sister. And he might learn our secret. You understand, don't you, my friend? Yes, Roderick. Yes. I understand. And so it came about, near midnight. We two alone made our way to an upper chamber of the house. And taking up the black coffin between us, in the shuddering light of candles, we walked the tortuous passageways, slowly descended the curving stairs of stone, passed beneath the moldy level of the earth forced open a massive and age-rusted door of iron and stood at last with our ghastly burden in a subterranean dank and musty crypt underneath the house of Usher. Over here, my friend, on these trestles. Now, a trifle higher with the head. There. Oh, may you sleep in peace and dream, sweet sister. From I who tread the same path soft behind you. Come, Roderick. The thing is done. Oh, wait. Stay a moment. We've not yet affixed the coffin lid. See? I've left it loose so it can be turned back. No. I beg you. A last farewell. No more. Look. Is she not beautiful? Yes. She was very beautiful. Was? Yes, of course. The look of her confused me. But do you not see it, too? The warm glow of the cheeks, the eyes shut softly, those lips half-parted. Does it not seem that she may rise up and speak to us at any moment? This gruesome place inspires those morbid fancies. Morbid fancies? That now dead she seems to live, and living seems already dead. Man, you seek out madness. You court it with your very thoughts. And if I do, what matters? What value can there be in reason without the hope of life? Dead, you say to me, she is dead. But what certainty? Why not with equal reason say instead she lives? And that I... I, the last of Asha, am the one who is already dead. I prevailed upon my friend at last to leave that mournful place. And so with grim finality we secured the ebon lid, took up our flickering candles and departed from the crypt, leaving it alone with its darkness and death. The ponderous portal closed behind us, and then my soul, for one brief instant, felt the dread and awful meaning of eternity. There followed then a week of such dreary gloom and melancholy that my own spirit quavered at the menace of the nameless thing enshadowed in that house. 
by perceptible degrees, the living soul of Roderick Usher flickered lower. More ghastly grew his pallor, more tremulous the extremity of his terror. The eighth day following the death of Lady Madeline fell upon the last day of grim and gray October and brought with it as the curtains of night descended the fitful breath of a rising tempest, uneasy gusts of sodden rain, and the sound of sullen thunderous rumbles born of the dim flares of sheet lightning somewhere behind the lowering pall. I retired at a late hour, but found sleep impossible. At length, overpowered by some strange presentiment of evil, I found my reposeful inaction no longer endurable. And so I arose, threw on my clothes in haste, and fell to pacing the floor of my darkened chamber. Then in one instant, a soft sound in the blackness froze my steps in paralysis of terror. The latch of my chamber door was being lifted from without. Who is it? Who is it, I say? It is I, Roderick. Oh, Oh, Roderick, what are you doing up and about at this hour, in pitch blackness? Wait, let me light the candles. No, I am quite used to darkness. I heard your footsteps and knew that you must be awake, even as I was. But can it be that you've not seen it? I don't understand you. I've seen nothing. Then stay. You shall see it. Even as I've seen it for these past two hours. Wait, wait. I'll throw open the casement window. There. Look! It was indeed a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night. And one wildly singular in its terror and in its beauty. The exceeding density of the clouds which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house did not prevent our perceiving the velocity with which they flew careening from all points against one another. We had no glimpse of the moon or stars, but terrible to behold, the undersurfaces of the huge cloud masses as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and clearly visible phosphorescence which hung like a shroud about the mansion itself. You see, my friend, tonight the thing grows bolder, gathers strength from the storm and from the dead soul it's eaten. No, no, Roderick, you must not look at this. Here, I shall close this window and pull these curtains. And now, candlelight. Such darkness is the very mother of evil fear. There. Now come, sit here. Suppose I read aloud from some book or another. As you wish. I presume it matters little which. Oh, here. Here's a volume of The Mad Tryst by Canning. Will it serve? As you said, it matters little. I've always found the scene to be quite entertaining, where Nethelred dreams of fighting a dragon. Now, let's see. Oh, yes. Here it is. And so, Ethelred waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit who mocked him from inside the hut. But feeling the rain upon his back and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his axe and quickly made a hole in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand. 
And now pulling sturdily, he so cracked and ripped all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. Why do you stop? Why, uh, <clears throat> that's, that's strange. I, I fancied I just heard the very sound I read about. Let us say it was caused by the storm, pray continue. Oh, yes, the storm. Of course. <clears throat> but, but Ethelred, upon entering the door, was, was amazed to perceive no sign of the evil hermit, but instead a dragon of prodigious and scaly demeanor, which sat on guard before a shield of shining brass. And Ethelred uplifted his axe and struck the head of the dragon, which fell before him with a shriek so horrid and harsh, like whereof was never before. What? What sound is that? Sound? The shriek of a dragon, my friend, read on. I, uh... Very well. And now the champion, bethinking himself of the shield of brass, approached across the silver floor to where the shield hung upon the wall. But the shield, not waiting for his coming, loosed and fell upon the silver floor with a mighty great... Roderick, I tell you something moves within this house. That sound, it reverberated through the very walls. Can you tell me now you did not hear it? Hear it now? Oh, yes, I hear it and have heard it long moments, hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not speak. But why? Do you not know we put her living in the tomb? I tell you now, I heard her first feeble movements in the coffin many, many days ago, and I, I felt then it mattered little. But now she comes to upbraid me for my haste. And that last dread sound, yes, I heard it, the opening of a metal door to the crypt beneath the house. Now... She comes here. Have I not heard her footsteps on the stair? Do I not distinguish the heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman that I am, I tell you that she now stands without that door. But even now she opens it. There in the flickering light of candles... In the gloom and curtained doorway stood the shrouded body of Lady Madeline. For one shuddering instant she swayed there. Then as Roderick uttered a single piteous cry, she fell upon him in violent and now final death agonies and bore him to the floor a corpse. From that chamber and from that mansion, I fled aghast out the massive portal over the causeway into the night. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I looked back in heightened terror, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The baleful gleam came from the setting full and blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through a widening crack in the walls of the house itself, and even as I gazed, its fissure opened rapidly. There came a fierce breath of the tempest. The entire lunar orb burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There came a long, tumultuous, shouting sound like the voice of thousand waters. And 
and the dark, deep tarn at my feet glows sullenly and silently forever over the pitiful ruins of the ancient house of Usher. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Paul Fries as the narrator, Ramsey Hill as Roderick Usher, and Sheridan Hall as the physician. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhrer. Next week... You are the victim of a poorer man... Pursued from the west coast of Africa to the west end of London by a dead man's head, which grins at you upside down. Next week, Escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, Pollock and the Poorer Man. Good night, then, until this same time next week when CBS again offers you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. We're back with Old Time Radio Essentials. This is Dave with Pete and Paul. That was The Fall of the House of Usher, an episode of Escape, originally broadcast October 22, 1947, on CBS. Pete, this was your selection for this installment. What made you choose it? Well, first of all, I think it's a nifty coincidence that we're running this selection in October, since the anniversary of its broadcast was 73 years and a few days ago. And to be perfectly honest, I first went looking for something with a Halloween theme and couldn't find anything that wasn't super corny, so I decided to go for straight horror. And I was very pleased to find this adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's famous tale. Uh, what did you guys think of it? Well, I felt like I needed medication after listening to it a couple of times because, I mean, it is so heavy and morose. And it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. But, I mean, it's really good. But it's it's interesting to hear, considering we listen to the radio program, got to say here instead of Fred, that... Uh, um, it doesn't follow your usual storyline, you know? It's like, oh, you're introduced to the story, here comes the hero, they're going to have conflict, and then there's the happy resolution or something. It's just, okay, you know, they're dead, the house fell in, he barely makes it out. Wow, that was, you know, everything was just so dark, so heavy, you know? <laughs> and, and it was, and I did, while I was reading, I thought it was interesting how, in the book, the part about the crack in the house that goes all the way through the ground and up through the house and everything, that was like in the first paragraph. But when you listen to the radio program, they don't mention it at the beginning, but they do mention it at the end, like just before the house collapses. And I thought that was kind of weird that they didn't give you that part. Yeah, I noticed that too. I, I went back and listened to it again at the beginning to see if it was mentioned and it wasn't. And it's like, yeah, now I thought, how... I thought it was kind of an obvious thing to leave out. But 
I'm sure they left it out for good reason, so that way people can go, oh, ho, that's what's going to happen. It certainly know? couldn't have been for time because it, it takes 30 seconds to <laughs> describe yeah. a crack in a house or, or less. Okay, okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it was very <laughs> – it had a hell of an atmosphere to it. You know, this this particular program, the way they recorded it, the music, the guy's voice. Who is it just me or did he sound kind of like Orson Welles? Well, it's Paul Fries, um, yeah. and he is a, a, just a famous name in, in old-time radio, uh, and I love his voice. He is very Wellesian, yeah. um, of course, but he but he's very distinguishable from Orson Welles in a lot of his stuff. Um, it's hard to describe. but it, he, can, he can play it that way if he wants, in other he words? Could, he, I do think he was famous for an Orson Welles Im- impression that he did at parties. But huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever played Orson Welles specifically. But no, it was it was really good. Just you want you you really want to go out in the sunshine afterwards just to <laughs> <laughs> clean yourself up a little bit. It was kind of like the first time I ever saw uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. I just felt like I needed a shower afterwards. Oh, you know, it was wow. just such a mind screw that you're like, oh god. <laughs> but All it was right. good. Dave, what do you what did you think? Did you have the same reaction? I kind of struggled with this episode, to be honest. Um, I grew up reading Poe and listening to Escape, and I still maintain, after all these years, that Paul Frees is one of the best radio actors of, of the Golden Age. I think he has one of the greatest and most distinctive voices of any of the radio actors that I'm familiar with, apart from you know maybe Ernest Chappell or somebody like that, and or Orson Welles, of course. But I really did not care for. I believe his name was Ramsey Hill in the role of Roderick. Um, I just, I thought it was, uh, I thought he was kind of overacting a bit. And between that and the, um, like the, the music, like the score for this episode, I, I didn't feel like I was in like the right mood. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe is like obviously a very uh, morose guy and he wrote very morose stories. And I thought that the, like the, the constant, like, you know, orchestra interruptions in this episode, like just destroyed the mood for me. And so I have to be honest and just say like, Apart from Paul Free's performance, like I really did not care for this episode. Sorry, guys. But it's but no no read it. Re- you don't apologize. have to apologize. No. <laughs> um, We're all allowed to have our own opinions. Yeah, exactly. Even if they don't agree with mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was certain that you guys loved this episode, so I was I was sort of dreading this um this recording because I, I didn't want to never do. I didn't want to no, no, no. be the party pooper. You, I, we want you to come in. If you've got a, a solid no vote, we want to hear that too, yeah. because our our purpose is to inform the public of of, uh, of of the shows, whether they're good or whether they're bad. And and we say right at the beginning, of course, we may agree with each other. You may have heard Paul say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice, yeah. But uh, but I was going for something that was definitely dark, definitely. Uh, Halloween-ish and not corny and I felt that this really f- filled the bill. Uh, Paul Fries, of course, as you said, was uh, fantastic. Uh, I didn't find the guy who played Roderick to be overacting so much as I found him to be annoying, but really I thought he was supposed to be annoying because he was uh, weak, sickly, privileged, rich, uh, um somebody who's lived alone for a long time and, and missed his friend and is finally, finally 
uh, has somebody to talk to about right. any about the old days. And so um, it really did something in terms of filling that darkness I was looking for. That sounds weird, doesn't it? I wasn't looking for darkness. I was looking for a dark program. Okay. <laughs> I was looking for the darkness. Yeah. Oh, I reach for the light. Well, I, I should maybe admit like a my own bias that maybe led me to that conclusion about this episode. I, I grew up really liking, although they're not at all faithful to the original stories, I really enjoyed um, watching the Roger Corman adaptations growing up. And uh -huh. I thought The Mask of the Red Death and The Fall of the House of Usher were two that he did that were not actually... Perhaps some of the set decoration was a little campy and garish, but the, the overall tone of those I thought was very much like in keeping with the, the tone of Edgar Allan Poe's stories. And so the, those two in particular, The Mask of the Red Death and The Fall of the House of Usher, both with, with Vincent Price in the starring role, I really adore. And I actually just rewatched um, both of those recently. And Vincent Price's role as Roderick, um, I thought was nice, nicely like understated. And so I think maybe maybe I had sort of like an internal bias going in because I was I'm just, you know, for 25 years when I think of Roderick Usher, I think of Vincent Price in that Roger Corman production. So maybe I just have my own. Uh, you had your bar set too high. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe <laughs> I just had something different. I had something different, in, you know, in mind for um, for this, what I expected from this episode, which is probably a little unfair because this is not a Roger Corman production. This is Escape. So. Well, true, true. But um, they all and, and in terms of, of how it was presented, they had to squeeze everything into a, a less than 30 minutes. Uh, they didn't have commercials, which was good, which would have broken up the mood even more, I imagine. Oh, um, sure. But J-E-L-L-O. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now with Dead Raven flavor. Mm. <laughs> That autumn mix, that uh, uh, harvest mix you were talking about. <laughs> Pumpkins and cats. Mm. Hmm. You want a raven? <laughs> Nevermore. Hey, Poe, we got some more of these ravens. You want them? <laughs> Nevermore. All right, all right, all right. But I did enjoy Paul Freeze's, um, Freeze's? Freeze? Uh, narration. He was very good. Um, he's in the triumvirate, you know, uh, Paul Freeze. William Conrad, Orson Welles, and who was another one you said? Uh, Ernest Chappell. Ernest Chappell, to me, we're going to go off the subject a little bit, but since you brought him up, Ernest Chappell, to me, is more, I think of him as either a professional announcer, as he did in Campbell's in Campbell Playhouse, mm -hmm. or the everyman narrator that he was so good with in Quiet, Please. But right. not a really dramatic... Uh, voice the way uh, a freeze could do or wells could do um, right it's just that he he had two there were two earnest chapels but anyway um uh, as as we were going on the um the atmosphere for me was was very good the music <clears throat> for me really set the mood for everything um there were some Annoying bits, Roderick's um, um, over-the-top reactions to things, and that was. But again, I try to keep that in mind that uh, how he was being presented was as a man who hadn't been with any sort of human company other than his sick sister for a long time. So that's where I was keeping that in mind. But uh, overall, I enjoyed it because um, it was encapsulated very well in that thirty minutes. 
it told the story and didn't leave out anything except the beginning, as Paul pointed out, and as I noticed as well, they didn't mention the crack in the house until the very end because it, it's like it always puzzled me because I read it as a kid and I'd forgotten about the crack being mentioned uh, and hadn't read it again until um, after I listened to this program. Um, it didn't leave much out because it's a short story. But I think that if they had mentioned that crack at the beginning, it would have tied things up even more, uh, even better at the end when the house finally collapsed. What's it? Because it, they tried to put tying, it across. Tying I think, the health of the house together with the health of the family. Right, because he because Roderick felt that the house was alive and spoke to him and right. and, and things like that. And and of course that's nutty, but <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> or is it? <laughs> but. Did the house die because the other two died, or was the house already damaged and it fell because of you know structural defects? Poe leaves that up to you to decide. The show, the the program, left it uh, uh, kind of directed it toward uh, a, a supernatural effect of the people dying, so the house died. So they they altered it slightly, I think. I'm just riffing. I may be wrong about that. What do you guys you, you <laughs> think so? It's been so long since I read um, really any Poe. I, I think I read every story he ever wrote when I was a, when I was a young boy. But I, I I'm overdue to go back and revisit it, so I, I can't speak to that um, that um, specific plot point. In I got that. you. And as for me, I rarely read uh, anything unless I'm I've got an eye to adapting it for audio drama. So oh sure sure. <laughs> like yeah, I, I read. Um, uh, the, a cask of Amontillado, but I was going to adapt it for audio drama, which I did. Yeah, um, from a technical point of view, the only thing I had a problem with uh, with this was at the end when you know they're both in Roder er, in uh, the narrator's room, and he hears all the sounds and everything, and then the door opens up and there's the sister, and she attacks the brother. And that, and then the music starts swelling, and then you hear the story. I was getting to the point where I couldn't really hear what he was saying that well. Mm -hmm. I had to go through it a couple of times and listen to it because they were, he was really getting washed out by the music and the sound effects. And it's like, what? What? Wait, what did he say? What? What was that? You know? <laughs> so it, it could have they could have toned that down a little bit so you could understand him better. Because I'm trying to picture it through the radios of the era. Mm -hmm. You know, and how well did the voice come through the rest of it then? Yeah, and it know? was mono in those days, so right. it would have it would have been all together in one speaker. So I'm sure there was some distortion for for listeners of the day. And you make a valid point there because by this time, 1947, radio was sophisticated enough, and engineer sound engineers should have been sophisticated enough to know that the music should be there, but it should be subservient to the voice right yeah because i mean yes we understand it's a storm and the house is collapsing and that's going to generate a lot of noise but still this is radio you don't know what the hell's going on unless the in, you know unless the guy's telling you what's right. going on and if you can't hear what he's telling you you know <laughs> what's the point right yeah <laughs> on, the, on the one hand i'm glad all those musicians had steady work but on the other hand as a fan of radio I'm very much a minimalist when it comes to music. Like I would just much rather have like an organ accompaniment than like a full, you know, like mini orchestra or whatever they had in the studio in those days. Cause yeah, for the reasons you mentioned, Paul, it just, it just becomes too overwhelming and 
you miss out on dialogue and stuff gets lost in the mix. And I mean, you're already shortening things down, and then you then you drown it out. So it's kind of like, oh well, <laughs> are you missing anything really important there? You know, I would think so. Yeah, if you're describing the 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 death of of characters and the death of the house, yeah, absolutely. So there's that. That's a bad thing. Anything else that you liked or disliked about it, either one of you? I did like the ambiance they set up with, you know, just using the words. You know, Poe is very good at really painting a picture with his words. It was a damn dark picture and it was a damn depressing picture, but he <laughs> painted it really well. So he was I mean, very I, dark I, and I, depressed, you know, himself. Yeah. You know, as I was re listening to it again this morning. And we have a, a bit of a storm coming through. So I'm like, screw it. Turned off all the lights and just had it playing. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need a Mountain Dew or something after this to perk me back up. Yeah, I guess I, I feel like I almost need to like qualify my criticism of it. Because I think Paul Freese is such a good actor that I almost, d- despite the fact that I, I did not enjoy um, – Mr. Hill's performance, I, I almost feel that like Paul Freese sort of made up for that in, in my mind. And I do I do agree that they kind of set a good atmosphere for it. I just um, not to sound like a broken record. I just felt like the um, the music sort of ruined that to a large extent. OK, yeah. well, they, they did pick the right guy to carry the show, Paul Freese. So, oh, for sure. Yeah, they made a They made a good choice there. All right. OK, let's vote. What are we voting on, dear listener? As a reminder, we are voting on A, whether this particular episode is a true representative installment of the overall series, and two, whether or not it is a standalone show that belongs in every Radio Aficionado's collection. And again, Pete, this was your selection, so you're the one who gets to go first. Yay. Okay, well, um, I would say this is early on in escapes life it's uh the very first year the first season i think uh it started in in the summer of 1947 and this is october 1947 they they hadn't really found their footing they were going to go on and make some just wonderful wonderful shows adaptations of bradbury adaptations of 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 arthur conan doyle other um adaptations of more modern stories and they had greatness in store for them so i would say this is not really a true representative installment of the overall series but it's a good one so i would say um the first thing we vote on no it's not a true representative installment because there were more it was good but there was more to come that was even better and based on uh uh, what you guys said in my own comments it really isn't something that would be a standalone show that belongs in every Radio Aficionado's collection. There are too many negative points about it. The uh, other characters, aside from the narration, the music, the, uh, <laughs> the dark, depressing overtones. <laughs> like a guy goes out, the family listens to it together, and everybody stands up at the end of it. They look at each other, and they all go into separate rooms. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm <laughs> Without a word, they're just... Oh. <laughs> they walk away from each other. So that I would say a, a, a thumbs down to both of those uh, items. That's for me. Well, Escape is, in my opinion, one of the best programs from the golden age of radio. But I don't. I agree with you, Pete. I don't think this is a representative episode in terms of um, the quality that was to come. 
So I think uh, folks should ha absolutely have some escape episodes in their collection. I just don't think it should be this one. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I think everyone should maybe listen to it once, enjoy Paul Free's performance, and then maybe just kind of you know file it away in the old in the old noggin. And um, let's see what else you got here. Move up, move up a season or two, and uh, I think I think um, if you've never listened to Escape before, then you're in for a, a number of treats because there were so many classic episodes of the series. Okay. All right. Well, I thought it was good. I'm trying to think of a better way to say this, I I thought it was pretty darn good. I mean, overall, because if they're shooting for a mood. They nailed it because, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe isn't known as bright and cheery, so they did that properly, you know. And for the most part, yeah, I, I do agree with Dave that, but it was the time when this came out that you were going to have those kind of orchestral little interruptions in there. And so I guess in, in my mind I'm thinking of how things were then, and so it, it didn't seem quite as distracting to me because I kind of expected it. Because every time you would watch a show or that, it'd be like, he's the father, boom, 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 kind of thing, you know? And so I was kind of expecting that. So it didn't really detract from, from me. I said the only thing that I had a problem with, again, was uh, that sound bit at the end, how it got it swelled everything so big to where you can't really understand what Paul was saying. Um, but, I mean, I thought it was pretty good overall. I mean, I, yes, I understand that uh, Escape had better episodes, but, I mean, if you're in the mood to be depressed, <laughs> this would be a good episode for you. You know, it's like, I've had a crappy day, and I just want to wallow in it, so what can I listen to that's going to be really depressed? Oh, I know. <laughs> How about that episode of Escape by, with Edgar Allan Poe? That'll do it. So, But I liked it, even though it was depressing. So, uh, I did have one thing, something I... Um thought of saying while you were giving your thing i didn't want to interrupt you and i wanted to wait for paul to do his i'm trying to think of what it was hold on okay i was gonna say um to me the show really hit its stride in the 50s they uh um were experimenting for the first few seasons but by the time they hit 1950 they really hit their stride and came up with some beautiful stuff and that's where if you really want to enjoy escape hit late 1949 1950 and then on until they're at the end of the series in 1954 okay um dave it's you <laughs> <laughs> okay great this brings us to the end of episode 17 of old time radio essentials our halloween special with pete lutz paul arbisi and me dave feldman next time the cycle comes around to paul and what's your choice for next month paul do you have a Thanksgiving-themed show for us? Actually, I do. Um, I figured, what the heck, me being Italian and Thanksgiving coming up, what could be better? So I picked Life with Luigi from November, I think it was 22nd of 1949. All right. And so that is what we're going to be doing for our Thanksgiving episode is the Italian take on Thanksgiving. Yeah, because, you know, there at Plymouth Rock, the Italians uh, really knew how to put on that first Thanksgiving. Hey, hey, you know, if this is a nice rock you got here, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. Considering <laughs> <laughs> that thoughts. That's awesome. <laughs> it'd be a shame if something happened. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. <sighs> well, we're really looking forward to that one, Paul. 
So that's next month on Old Time Radio Essentials. Paul, Dave, tell the masses what they need to know. Old Time Radio Essentials is a production of 63 Audio, a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. Subscribe on Apple or any other podcatcher you may use by searching under Mutual Audio Network and or Narada Radio Company. Uh, like us on Facebook at Mutual Audio Fans and at Narada Radio Company Fans and Friends. On Twitter at Essentials Old. If you want to suggest a future episode, write us at F6.3 at gmail.com. That's the letter F, the number six, the word point, and the number three at gmail.com. Put the words essentials in the subject line. Remember, friends, we're always happy to hear from our listeners, so please do send us feedback and more suggestions. And if you didn't catch our email when Paul spelled it out, look for it in the show notes. I want to inform you that the Mutual Audio Network is currently showcasing Transcontinental Terror, a month-long series of new horror audio dramas launching every Sunday. Get caught up on those, and be sure to catch especially the two put out by 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company entitled What the Cat Dragged In and White Zombie, my audio adaptation of the famous film starring Bela Lugosi. And on October 30th, World Audio Drama Day, we're releasing an all-new ghostly comedy in the style of a Marx Brothers movie. That one's called Do I Spectre? I'll say I do. So don't miss this one, friends. I'm very proud of it. Okay, it's time to wrap things up. So that's it for now, everybody. Join us next time for another fun installment of Old Time Radio Essentials. Bye-bye for now, and happy Halloween! Happy Halloween, everybody. Enjoy your raven-flavored mellow cream. Ciao. <laughs> Wait a minute. 63 Audio. This is Mutual. Are you a fan of all things horror? Yeah? You are? Well, in that case, find Tuesday Terrors, which is the mutual audio feed that comes out on a Tuesday, believe it or not. Shock horror, I know. But if you subscribe there, you'll find amazing horror fiction audio in your player every Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.